0: time for a regular segment with Barrister and Solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Michael Mulligan and Legally Speaking on CFAX. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting items on the agenda this week, including an interesting case, reasonably local, that has to do with landlords, tenants and procedural fairness. That's exactly right. Uh, and uh, I should start by saying this, right? The, the the reason why only a vanishingly small percentage of contracts that people enter into ever wind up in court is that the basic nature of a contract is a free agreement between two people to do something they both want to do, right? Hey, do you want to buy my bike? Yes, great, <laughs> right? You're happy to get the bike, I'm happy to get your money. Uh, but we've moved provincially further and further away from that sort of free agreement between two people in the case of residential tenancy. Um, And when you see the changes over the years and read these decisions that come out, it's become uh, very apparent uh, that for political reasons, uh, the provincial government has modified uh, sort of what people can agree to, to the point where, Uh, often these agreements are not free agreements between two people entered into where they both think there's some mutual benefit, uh, but uh, they're something else, right, designed to achieve a a social aim. And then as uh, often the landlord tries to escape that reality, the provincial government comes along and plugs various things into the, the dike of, you know, uh, water coming out the other side. And so that's the broad background to this case that just came out that originated in Duncan. And the background of it is that uh, landlords who owned a home in Duncan wanted to move into the home uh, and so gave notice, as they are permitted to do, uh, under the Residential Tenancy Act. And the those provisions, in terms of uh, when somebody can... Uh, make use themselves of a home that they own that they've previously been renting, require a number of things. They require there to be uh, a longer notice period. They now require there to be one month's free rent given to the tenant. And then the part which is sort of, uh, I think the only way I could describe it, would be sort of gamified the situation, um, is that if the landlord who gives notice doesn't move into the unit themselves within a reasonable period of time, the tenant, former tenant, can seek 12 months rent from the landlord. Hmm. And so it's produced a circumstance where it, reading these decisions, it's apparent, you know, you've got former tenants trying to, you know, sneak by and knock on the door and see is the person there. Or how long do they take to move in? Uh, because there's a potential big payday uh, if the person didn't move, the landlord didn't get into the house in a reasonable period of time. Yeah. And so this case, the landlord gave notice to the tenant. The tenant moved out after a couple of months. Uh, And then the landlord uh, was uh, doing some repair work on the house before moving into it. They took out the carpet and realized there had been water leaks in the house. So that required them to uh, remove drywall, replace appliances, repair structural damage, do plumbing and electrical work, get permits to do these things. Uh, And so that delayed them moving into the house. Now, it got a little fuzzy because the landlord, in addition to fixing the problems that became apparent when the carpet got removed decided to do other things like replacing windows uh, and uh, ordering appliances and I think uh, doing another upgrade or two to the property. And that delayed them moving into it. And so the former tenants brought an application to try to get 12 months rent, uh, which produced a hearing under, under the Residential Tenancy Act. And that's where things started to go a little haywire here and how it eventually wound up in court. Uh, and the challenges, and this would be something that would have been entrenched over the period of COVID, is that these hearings are now conducted by routinely and presumptively telephone. Hmm. Now, that's okay, I guess, to, so far as it goes, it's a 20-minute hearing by telephone. But one of the requirements under the Residential Tenancy Act, and this would be a requirement of procedural fairness, is that the parties need to, if they're going to be relying on documents during the hearing, they need to give them to the other person, right? That sort of fairness kind of dictates that, right? You don't, uh, just like in court, you can't sort of pass something secretly up to the judge without letting the other person (laughs) see it. That's not right. No. Um, So here, uh, there's a requirement to do that. The problem is that when the a hearing is connected by telephone, it may not be apparent well what exactly is being referred to here uh and after the decision was made, and the decision by the adjudicator was that um the uh those the additional work that the landlord did uh apart from replacing the drywall and the struck repairing the structural damage and the electrical work and so on from the water leaks. Uh, amounted to not just addressing a deficiency, but doing an upgrade on the property. And so the language in the Residential Tenancy Act, when somebody hasn't moved in in a reasonable period of time, uh, is that there has to be an exigent circumstance which prevented them from moving in. And so the, in any case, the, the adjudicator here said, well, I don't think this was an exigent circumstance. I, I guess the adjudicator was interpreting it in a way to say you have to live through your renovations, you have to be in there yourself, tough it oh, out. Interesting. Um, in any case, it became after the decision where the adjudicator awarded the tenant sixteen thousand two hundred dollars, so the twelve wow. months rent. It became apparent that the former tenants had provided more material to the adjudicator that the adjudicator was looking at in making their decision that was not provided to the former landlord. And it wasn't apparent during the hearing because it was on the phone. So you've got the adjudicator looking at various things and making a decision about, you know, the repairs, the tenants talking about, you know, they were suggesting, oh, we don't think that the mold damage was that bad and, you know, we didn't notice it in the kitchen, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, And the adjudicator was going along looking at a bundle of documents that that turned out only later the landlord was never given. Um, And so that's the fact pattern that wound up um, in court by way of a judicial review. And and I should say this, these cases are becoming now uh, relatively common, whereas in the past it would be very rare... For a residential tenancy decision to wind up in the supreme court for things like a judicial review because of the, it would be uneconomic right yes. if people are fighting over a month's rent or you know what about this or that it's not worth doing that but when the act has now been amended trying to you know close off a, a way in which a tenancy could possibly be ended by a landlord by producing this sort of gamified large possible award the cases are winding up in Supreme Court. And so, here, the judge who had to review all of this concluded that, well, it's perfectly acceptable that residential tenancy decisions be made in a summary fashion, right? We, we You want to have process that kind of accords with how much people are fighting over, right? Uh-huh. And so, doing them by telephone makes sense, or right? if you're fighting over a few hundred dollars, you probably shouldn't make everyone take the day off work and go to court and hire a lawyer. That's just not going to work, right? That's fine, but there has to be a high degree of procedural fairness. And that's going to be even more carefully scrutinized when there's a large amount of money involved, uh, which is part of what's happening here. You've got the government creating what amounts to sort of penalty provisions uh, payable to the tenant if a landlord tries to end a, a, a tenancy, right? So yes. bear in mind, ordinarily with a contract, People are, would be able to write up a contract that would say, hey, I'm going to rent my house to you for two years. Is that okay? Yeah, you agree? I agree? Great. We agree, <laughs> right? Um, but those kind of things are just not permitted any longer. Like once somebody gets in as a tenant, they're in, right? Unless the landlord can somehow find some provision that would allow the thing to end. And then they also restrict, uh, of course, uh, how much rent can be charged. And so you wind up with circumstances where, in many cases, there's no longer some meeting of the minds where the two people agree for a mutual benefit that they want to exchange something for money, Yeah, it's a circumstance where the government has sort of effectively tried to sort of expropriate part of the value of people's property to redistribute to a certain group of people, those being current tenants, hmm. right? And I guess that's a philosophical thing generally with the sort of rent control uh, efforts, whether that's appropriate or not, I I suppose I would say we'd be better off as a public policy if we want to subsidize rent for existing tenants, tax everyone, uh, and give them a subsidy Hmm. uh, rather than trying to extract that value from people that happen to be existing landlords. Otherwise, of course, you're going to wind up with all kinds of arguments about, you know, whether a person can possibly get out of uh, some unwilling uh, uh, agreement, which is what people have been forced into, and then you wind up with provisions like this trying to plug... Uh, holes yeah. so people aren't doing things improperly and then even where nobody seems to like in this case have been doing anything untoward you wind up with this kind of a decision and reviews and court cases and so on and so it's just an example of that um, there will be a new hearing in this case where the landlord will get all of the material and get to go back and have another telephone hearing uh, and we'll have to wait the outcome here but I think it's worth people knowing about both in terms of that reality uh and I'm no doubt uh, this would fact this kind of a case and this kind of a circumstance is going to factor into people's decisions about do you ever want to be a landlord <laughs> because you are now subject to potentially very large uh awards uh you know if it takes too long to uh fix up the rotten floorboards or whatever or get the appliances into the house if uh, if you ever want to move back into it so that's the uh that's the case out of Duncan. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defence Lawyers after this. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defence Lawyers as we continue our segment today. What's next on the agenda, Michael? Uh, next on the agenda is a uh, case we spoke about uh, back at the uh, trial stage that's now had an appeal. Uh, and it's got a local element to it as well. Uh, It's a case that involves a former manager of Galaxy Motors, which is a chain of uh, several used car dealerships uh, or lots on Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a wrongful dismissal claim brought by a former uh, manager of Galaxy Motors. Uh, And the first thing that was notable about it, I think both the trial decision and the court of appeal decision, is that that's a pretty good uh, line of work to be in, it would seem as the fellow's income in the year that he was terminated was between $750,000 and $1 million. Hmm. Uh, So don't feel bad if you're leaning into the used car dealership for a bit of a discount on the truck you're buying. It would seem that they're doing pretty well. Uh, So the background of it was that this uh, fellow, the manager, well-paid manager, uh, went on a business trip up to Parksville and brought his wife. And according to the judge, they found that uh, while staying in Parksville, uh, the manager had dinner with his wife but wrote the name of two employees on the dinner receipt. And the next morning had breakfast at the same restaurant and wrote another employee's name on the receipt and submitted them for reimbursement. Mm -hmm. Uh, That got spotted on an audit. He was confronted with it and denied doing it. Uh, And as a result of that, he was fired. Uh, he sued for wrongful dismissal, and that case went to trial unsuccessfully uh, for the former manager, and so he appealed that. Uh, and one of the grounds of appeal was arguing that uh, the uh, what the judge found to be dishonesty surrounding the restaurant expenses should not have standing alone been sufficient to provide just cause for dismissal. Because the way it works is that if an employer has just cause to fire somebody, they can do exactly that right yes <laughs> you're fired, and they're not you're not entitled to any compensation. but if you're fired without just cause, a person could be uh, entitled to and would presumptively be entitled to either notice or pay in lieu of notice, depending oh. on you know how long did they worked there for and how specialized was the job, and did the person find other employment? And so the central issue in wrongful dismissal cases is, can often be, was something just cause for firing? Huh. Uh, and the former manager argued that uh, the uh, ins- the single instance of uh, the writing the employee's names on the receipt for the two meals with the wife um, should not have amounted to just cause because the car dealership, Uh, had uh, alleged other things as well, a broader pattern of misconduct. Hmm. Uh, And the Court of Appeal found that that was not uh, a ground of appeal, found that the uh, fact that the fellow had uh, submitted the receipts improperly and then not acknowledged it when confronted with it, uh, found that the act relied upon by the judge, those things, according to the Court of Appeal, went to the heart of the employer-employee relationship, and that it was sufficient a cause for dismissal hmm. uh, and so that's one takeaway there, is sort of how uh you know dishonesty in that regard can be the end of employment without any compensation then the other thing which was i think worth noting the unsuccessful former manager um submitted an affidavit on the appeal setting out that hey he had other expenses uh that he could have claimed that he didn't claim Uh, arguing that, well, I haven't really profited from this because I had other legitimate expenses that I didn't claim for. So I was reimbursed for less than really what I was entitled to, even if uh, those two meals shouldn't have been paid for by the car dealership. And that raised the first issue which people should know about, which is a test for fresh evidence on an appeal. And the idea there is that you can't just sort of argue your case at trial not succeed and then come along later and say well look at this evidence it's all very compelling Uh, and so there's a four-part test you need to satisfy if you want on an appeal the court of appeal to look at something new and the first part of it is you have to show that if by that you could not if you were duly diligent have found whatever it is you're trying to rely upon at the time of your trial right Uh, next you have to show that it would be relevant Uh, next you have to show that it's Potentially credible or reasonably capable of belief. And then finally, you have to show that it could have reasonably be expected to have affected the outcome of the trial. It's Hmm. got to be important, not just some minor point. Mm -hmm. And so looking at that, the Court of Appeal found, well, it doesn't even get past the first test. If you had some receipts you didn't claim for, you could easily have found those at time of the trial. You didn't. And so this is not something fresh or new that you couldn't have found without Uh, If you exercise due diligence, so it doesn't even get past the first hurdle. And then moreover, the Court of Appeal found that the evidence, not only that, but it was not relevant and could not have affected the result, right? Because the the basis for finding that there was just cause to fire the fellow uh, was was that this conduct and his response to it sort of undermined the trust relationship with the senior employee. Uh, And so the fact that he may not have claimed other things that he could have claimed uh that just would not have affected the outcome of the case and so that ground of appeal was dismissed as well and so the outcome from the court of appeal is no compensation the uh restaurant receipts with the employee's name and then the response to it those things together uh, amounted to just cause for the dismissal and so that's the uh that's a life lesson from galaxy motors all right we have five and a half minutes left i see a couple of stories on the agenda which would we prefer Sure. Well, why don't we talk about the, uh, the Court of Appeal decision uh, involving a person who wanted to be a doctor? Sure. An interesting one. All right. And so the background of that, this is also a local case. Uh, it was a, a woman who uh, was going to Univer- the University of Victoria uh, doing a bachelor's degree in science. Um, and she was very unfortunate it would appear from the decision. She wound up in a total of four car accidents between 2014 and 2020. Wow. And not all the details are set out here, but at least one of them wasn't her fault. She was a passenger in a car that got rear-ended, so fair enough. She was very unfortunate in terms of uh, car accidents. Now, this case predates no fault, which is important to know. Um, And that's important to know because prior to no fault, Uh, one of the things that could be considered uh, in a a case where somebody was injured and it affected their ability to work in the future um, is that a court could need to consider, like, well, what were your future prospects? How were things likely to work out for you? And how did the accident impact that, right? Did the accident make it less likely you would have pursued your career as a, I don't know, ballet dancer or a, in this case, doctor? Uh, And, the woman's argument uh, was that uh, she was uh, wanting to go to medical school and the effect of these, all these car accidents, which had did appear to have a significant effect on her physically and psychologically. She had, I think, mild traumatic brain injury uh, flowing from these things, um, affected her ability to become a doctor. And so she one of the things she was asking for uh, in terms of compensation was the difference between how much she would make as a nurse, which is she went through nursing school, and how much she would have made if she'd become a doctor. And her argument was, well, my ability to become a doctor was impaired by these car accidents. And so that's what the trial judge had to wrestle with and what ultimately the Court of Appeal had to sort out. And that's complicated. Even the Court of Appeal judges couldn't agree on the proper result here. It was a split decision. It was two to one Yeah, Court of Appeal. And the background of it is the trial judge concluded based on the evidence uh, that uh, she had, was that they, she concluded that there was a 75% chance uh, that this woman would have gotten into medical school, uh, and then hmm. looked at how much money she would be making uh, working for the rest of her life as a registered nurse, and how much money she would have made had she succeeded in getting into medical school, uh, and then awarded her uh, the difference, right, based yes. with some contingencies. The majority of the Court of Appeal, interestingly, didn't agree with the trial judge, and, and part of the analysis was looking at what is your person's actual chances of getting into medical school. Yeah, Because saying, I want to go to medical school, doesn't mean you're going to medical school. Uh, and so they were right into the weeds, looking at things like, well, what were her transcripts like? What were her marks? How many people get into medical school? What's the acceptance rate? How many spots are there all across the country? Yeah. Um, And one of the very interesting tidbits there, and this maybe is a comment on grade inflation. Apparently, the woman had not that great grades for the first few years of university, but then really buckled down, was doing very well. Yes. And in fact, in her nursing program, uh, which uh, she had transferred over to, I think, yeah, UBC, she was in the A to A plus range, Uh, although this was an odd point her transcripts indicated that was the average in her class. So hmm. I'm not sure what that looks like, but apparently the nursing program's got a pretty high uh, pretty high grading uh, scheme. Now, the other co- the other factor, which was not in her favor, in so found the majority of the Court of Appeal, is that she had not written the MCAT. The MCAT is like the test ah, you need yes. to write, and which p- plays into whether you're going to get into medical school. Yes, And so... The majority of the Court of Appeals said, look, I appreciate she's done very well in her last you know, her nursing program, and she's keen and wants to go to medical school, but you haven't written the MCAT. Very few people get into medical school. The acceptance rate is really low, uh, and so effectively what the majority did was to find that the accidents diminished her chances of getting into medical school by 10%, not that she was a 75% probability of getting in and look what the income would have been and just subtract one from the other and calculate an amount, the majority found that, no, this did have an effect, right? Your chances of getting in may have been better, but for these various car accidents, but concluded that rather than there being a 75% chance she would have gotten in, concluded there was only a 20% probability she actually would have been admitted. And then we found that the accidents reduced that. And so the proper amount would be you had a twenty percent chance, your accidents reduced that, and then this is the amount that you would get, and the difference at the end of the day was four hundred and fifty thousand hmm. dollars. But it's a really interesting insight into how that works. Yeah. The other thing to note is that under no fault, none of this occurs. What happens is you get a percentage of the income you're making at the time you're disabled in the accident. And so if you're a medical student, say in your last year and oh, you work part time you work part time at the coffee shop. Yeah. You will re- and you're disabled completely, you cannot work for the rest of your life, you get a portion of what you make at the coffee shop. And that's it. No consideration is given to what was almost certain to happen next year as soon as you graduated. You're just considered part-time coffee shop employee for the rest of your life. That's awful. And so, really interesting case, but, you know, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, imagine that outcome now. So that's, wow. the, uh, that's the local case uh, for the woman who wanted to be a doctor. Important example. Michael Mulligan, appreciate your time as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great day. That's uh, Michael Mulligan, Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour on the program every Thursday. News is next.